Well, there was this pig farmer who wanted to breed three sows with his neighbor's boar. He loaded the sows up in the back of his pickup truck, and he drove them to his friend's farm, where he put the sows in the pen with the male pig. Well, when he returned later that afternoon, he asked his neighbor how he'd know if the mating had been successful. And so his friend explained to him, he said, well, in the morning, look outside, and if the pigs are rolling in the grass, you know it took. But if they're rolling in the mud, you know it didn't. Well, the next morning, the farmer, he ran to the window, he looked outside to check on his sows, and there they were, all three girls were rolling in the mud. The farmer, though, he decided to try again. So he loaded the pigs back into his pickup truck, he drove them back to the farm. Again, he put them in the pen with the male pig, the boar. Well, when he arrived later in the day to pick them up, again he asked, now let me make sure I've got this straight, when will I know that little piglets are on the way? The neighbor repeated himself. He said, well, in the morning, if they're rolling in the grass, it took. If they're rolling in the mud, you know it didn't. So as soon as he woke up the next morning, he looked out the window, and there were the three pigs stuck in the mud. Undaunted, he loaded the three sows back into his pickup truck for the third time, took them back to his neighbor's farm, put them back into the pen with the male pig. This time, at the end of the day, when he went to pick them up, he asked his friend, he said, now, now let me make sure I got this straight. In the grass, good. In the mud, bad. You got it. Well, that night, the farmer had to go out of town. But the next morning, he called his wife. He was anxious. He said, honey, look out the window and tell me, are the sows in the grass or in the, in the mud? Well, he waited, and he waited, and he waited. Finally, she returned to the phone. Phone. He said, honey, he said, I got to know, are the pigs rolling in the grass or are they rolling in the mud? She responded, neither. Two of them are in the back of your pickup truck and one is in the cab honking the horn. <laughs> well, evidently, his friend's male pig was no boar. The point of the story is that God created sex not just for breeding, but for blessing. That he designed sex not just for procreation, but for pleasure. You know, if all God cared about was repopulating the planet, then cloning or cell division would have done the trick. But sex brings a husband and a wife together in a manner that maximizes intimacy and enhances enjoyment. Sex fuses two lives and solidifies their commitment and their closeness. Hey, when God created sex, like everything else that he created, he said that it was good. The Song of Solomon describes for us just how lavish a source of intimacy and ecstasy sex can be between a husband and a wife. You know, since sex is so often abused and misused in our culture, we can get the impression that it's evil. But not so. That is certainly not God's take on the subject. Proverbs 5, verse 18 and 19 declares, Rejoice with the wife of your youth. Let her breast satisfy you at all times. Always be enraptured with her love. Hey, God is no prude. In fact, the Song of Solomon is so graphic, the language so erotic and sensual, the Jewish rabbis prohibited their young men from even reading the book until they had reached the age of 30 years old. The Song of Solomon, my friend, will steam your glasses. It'll race your pulse. It'll cause your face to blush. But just remember, God isn't blushing. He wrote the book on sex. And he wants us to enjoy it in our marriages and relish it to the fullest. God wrote the book on sex, and like the rest of the Bible, God wants the song of songs read and understood and even modeled in our marriages. You know, it's true, the Song of Solomon is an oriental love song. Its immediate subject is eroticism and marital lovemaking, but that's not all that it is. For the Song of Solomon also has a deeper, more spiritual meaning. The Jews sensed the book's spiritual significance, and they gave it special reverence. In fact, in the Jewish Mishnah, Rabbi Akiba is quoted as saying, In the entire world, there is nothing equal to the day on which the Song of Solomon was given to Israel. 
All writings are holy, but the song of songs is most holy. In the Old Testament, God illustrated his relationship with the Hebrews through marriage. He was the husband, and Israel was the bride. Of course, in the New Testament, Jesus is our bridegroom, and the church is his bride. Song of Solomon allegorizes the intimacy that God desires with his people. The song reminds us that Jesus is not just Lord of my life, but he also wants to be lover of my soul. The Song of Solomon will stretch us spiritually. One commentator writes this, No book furnishes a better test than does this song of the depth of a man's Christianity. If his religion is only in his head as dry doctrine, he'll see nothing here to attract him. But if it has a hold of his heart, this will become a favorite portion of his Bible. I like to treat the Song of Songs as God intended. It's a celebration of marital love. I don't over-allegorize it, but when the parallels are helpful, I'll try to point them out to you. Well, verse 1 introduces the book, The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. I read this week that Dolly Parton has written 600 songs. Well, according to 1 Kings 4, verse 32, Solomon wrote 1,005 songs. Three, only three have survived. Psalm 72 and Psalm 127, they were hits. But the Song of Songs went platinum. It reached number one on the Hebrew top 40. You know, the phrase king of kings refers to king who is above all other kings. Well, the Song of Songs is the song that is above all other songs. This was the first or the best or the most excellent of all Solomon's songs, the Song of Songs. The Song of Solomon was actually a cantata. It was sort of more opera. It was a song that told a story. Three speakers convey the story here in this book. King Solomon, his Shulamite bride, and the daughters of Jerusalem, or her girlfriends. And of course, every guy knows that if you want to marry a girl, you got to impress her girlfriends. The one problem in the Song of Solomon is you're not always sure who's talking. The New King James Version does a good job of inserting headings that identify the speaker. And though the headings aren't perfect, they're certainly helpful, and we'll sort of follow along with those headings as we go. Chapter 1 introduces the young bride that Solomon brings to his palace in Jerusalem. In the song, she's called the Shulamite. She was from the town of Shunem. Solomon met her while traveling through the mountains of Lebanon, and he became mesmerized by her rustic beauty and her country charm. The Shunammite, Shulamite was, a, was basically a hillbilly. She was sort of an Ellie Mae Clampett. Or if you don't remember Ellie Mae, she was kind of like a Daisy Duke. She was beautiful but backwoods. Here was the original hee-haw honey. But this was why Solomon had fallen in love with her. His palace was packed with cover girls, pampered pinups with store-bought beauty. The Shulamite, oh, she was different. Hers was a natural beauty. Here was a woman of virtue. Neither her beauty nor her character had been defiled by the big city. The Shulamite worked as a shepherdess, tending her brother's flocks. And when Solomon saw her, oh, it was probably love at first sight. But he hid his royal identity at first. He made sure that her love for him was genuine. He didn't reveal that he was the king until he had returned to Lebanon to take her to Jerusalem. Now here's sort of an overview of the song. Chapters 1 and 2 are the early days of their marriage. They are enjoying this newfound love. But like all newlyweds, the couple has some adjustments to make. The last half of chapter 3 into chapter 5 flashes back to their honeymoon. Solomon came in his royal coach to transport his bride to his palace. From Lebanon to Jerusalem, they celebrate with lavish lovemaking. By the middle of chapter 5, the honeymoon's over. The Shulamite has, has a dream in which God alerts her to some coldness that has settled in and crept into her marriage. In chapter 6 through 8, she responds to that dream and she learns some important lessons 
that revive the intimacy in her marriage. She develops a new attitude and a new aggressiveness and a new atmosphere. They finally return to the country where their romance began, and the book closes with the couple in the countryside on a second honeymoon. Tonight we'll cover chapters 1 through 3. Next week we'll study from chapter 4 through chapter 8. Well, the dialogue begins here in verse 2. The Shulamite, or Shula as we'll call her, she sets a tone for the book. She says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. What's a kiss? Here's a definition that a college student shared with his girlfriend. Before I heard my professor tell the facts about a kiss, I had considered kissing you the closest thing to bliss. But now I know biology and sit and sigh and moan. 6,000 small bacteria, and I thought we were alone. (laughs) Apparently, a kiss is a form of germ warfare. Biologically speaking, I guess a kiss doesn't sound very appealing. The exchange of bacteria, yet romantically, oh my, a kiss, it, it creates a spark and it fuels a passion. A kiss is an expression of intimacy. It ignites the flame of desire. You know, I always, always said that a kiss is a good thing because you're so close to your spouse that they can't see any of their faults. <laughs> it's a great enjoyment, a kiss. And notice here who initiates the kiss. Not Solomon. It's the Shulamite. The wife here is the aggressor. You know, in many marriages today, it's sort of assumed that the wife plays defense and the husband plays offense. But you got to know that's not biblical. Here it's the woman who tells her husband what she wants from him. You see, God's idea of sex is for both spouses to be on the offense. Nobody plays defense. There's no offsides in marriage or holding penalties, aren't you glad? Or illegal use of hands or pass interference. All passes need to be enjoyed in marriage. You know, as single Christians, we're told that sex outside of marriage is sinful, and it is. We see it abused by the world around us. And as a result, many Christian women carry a negative view of sex into their marriage. They treat sex as something that's dirty and shameful. It's an activity to be endured rather than enjoyed. And yet, from the outset, the Shulamite, she counters that attitude. She feels free to express herself sexually. She is the one who initiates the kiss, and she's the one that says to her husband, your love is better than wine. It reminds me of the guy who whispered to his wife, Honey, kisses are the language of love. She replied, Well, you better speak up. The Shulamite is in love. And she longs for Solomon's kisses. And notice too, she says, Your love is better than wine. You know, wine has a fourfold effect on a person. It's sweet to the taste. It quenches your thirst. It's intoxicating and causes you to come back for more. And then it's also addictive. It causes you to lose your inhibitions and forget where you you are or who you were and what you are and where you are. You lose all of those inhibitions. And this is how the Shulamite views sexual love. It's sweet to her taste. And it's quenching a thirst, a desire inside. And it's intoxicating and causes her to lose her inhibitions. And it's also addictive. She wants more. She says, your love, Solomon, is better than wine. Now, here's an appropriate spiritual application. Psalm 2, verse 12, says this. Kiss the Son. Did you know that we kiss Jesus? Not literally. I'm not going to creep you out or anything. We kiss Jesus. Not literally, but relationally. When we express our desire to follow Him. Our longing to know Him. Our intention to walk with Him. This is a kiss in a spiritual sense. A spiritual kiss is a prayer or a song or a praise or a thank you. And in turn, Jesus kisses us when we sense his warmth and his approval. 
He kisses us when his spirit reveals his presence or his power or his plan to our hearts. And as with any kiss, this kind of exchange, it excites and it sparks and it ignites a flame. Truly, the kisses of Jesus also are better than wine. Well, the Shulamite continues in verse 3. Because of the fragrance of your good ointments, your name is ointment poured forth. Therefore, the virgins love you. Draw me away. Now, recall the queen, she's in some new surroundings here. During her country courtship, it was just her and her shepherd, just the two of them, Shlomo and Shula. The days were free, the hours were private, the duties were light. But now she's in Jerusalem, and she is the wife of the king. Now she has servants and responsibilities, and Solomon is about his daily duties. He's busy attending to affairs of state. Often he's late returning home to the palace. Life has changed for her. She's not used to sharing her husband. And worse, she has become painfully aware that in the palace there are other women who long for her husband. Oh, she sees the looks. They'd love to be with the king. Suddenly she realizes that she has competition. And she wishes the king would just take her away. Take me back to the country, she says. In the next line, the daughters of Jerusalem, the palace maidens, they express their desire for Solomon. They say, we will run after you. The Shulamite counters by reminding them all that the king has chosen her. She says, no, the king has brought me into his chambers. That doesn't quench, though, the longing of these maidens. They say of Solomon, we will be glad and rejoice in you. We will remember your love more than wine. The Shulamite can't argue. She understands what they see in him. She responds, rightly do they love you. All this competition, all this vying for Solomon's affections, it starts to breed in the Shulamite some insecurities. And she begins to doubt her attractiveness. Verse 5. I am dark but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not look upon me because I am dark, because the sun has tanned me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. She mourns the fact that her skin is tough and tanned. And she's comparing herself now with the palace princesses. I mean, they're always indoors. I mean, these girls have unlimited Mary Kay budgets. They're always pampered with bubble baths and moisturizers. They've got these creamy complexions. Oh, but the Shulamite, she's been out in the fields, exposed to the wind, under the hot summer sun. She's been caring more about her brother's sheep than about her own appearance. And when she compares herself with the maidens in the royal court, she feels inferior. And she wonders why in the world Solomon would love her. This also helps explain the spiritual experience of many Christians. They too live under the cloud of doubt and insecurity. They're haunted by their flaws and their blemishes and their failures. How could Jesus love the likes of me? And so often we feel so unworthy of his affections. And like the Shulamite, our inferiority is even heightened by the purity and holiness of the people around us that we witness. Well, verse 7 indicates just how deep the Shulamites' insecurities run. She says, tell me, O you whom I love, where you feed your flock, where you make it rest at noon, for why should I be as one who veils herself by the flocks of your companions? She feels so inadequate that she wants to hide behind a veil. And every husband in this room tonight needs to listen up to me now. For just like the Shulamite, your wife has some misgivings about her physical appearance. A recent Harris poll revealed that 99% of all women, that's a lot of women. That's a pretty good proportion. That 99% of all women wish they could change something about their bodies. Hey, all you have to do is look at the popularity of breast implants and fanny tucks and facelifts. It all testifies to the reality of female insecurities. Men, 
Your wife won't give herself freely and uninhibitedly to you unless she is certain that you are satisfied with what you're getting. That means, and I want to say this gently, as gently as I can, that means you are an idiot if you ever criticize or talk down about her appearance. You're an idiot if you ever make that mistake. If you want her to want you, you need to praise how she looks. You need to tell her how much you love all of the special features with which God has created her in her. And even the features she's added over the years. You need to tell her how much you like those too. The more assurance you bring, the more affirmation you send, the more trust she has in your appreciation and your acceptance the more she'll be able to open up and loosen up in her sexual expression. Well, this is exactly what Solomon does here. He speaks to her concerns in verse 8. If you do not know, O fairest among women, follow in the footsteps of the flock and feed your little goats beside the shepherd's tents. Notice this. She's not fairer than most or one of the fairest. No, he refers to her as fairest of all. Solomon praises her beauty and assures the Shulamite that as far as he's concerned, she has no competition. She has no rival in his heart. You know, for years, radical feminist Gloria Steinem used to say the reason she never married was because she could never mate in captivity. (laughs) Well, if Gloria wants to compare herself with a wild animal, I suppose that's up to her. But most of the women that I speak to they, they talk of marriage not as a captivity, but as an opportunity for creativity. It's only when you're sure of your husband's approval and devotion and that he's going to be there again and again and again. Only then can you release mentally and relax emotionally and explode sexually. This means that if a, a husband wants a fun, vibrant sex life, he needs to show sensitivity to his wife's insecurity. If you're a husband, you want to write that down. You need to show a sensitivity to your wife's insecurity. Your acceptance can put her at ease. Now Solomon continues in verse 9. I have compared you, my love, to my filly among Pharaoh's chariots. Pharaoh's filly. This might have been an Egyptian princess. Kings in those days would seal treaties by giving a daughter in marriage to their ally. This woman may have joined Solomon's harem as a diplomatic maneuver. Whatever the circumstances, though, the presence of this woman had added to the Shulamites' insecurities. I mean, what's a country girl compared to an Egyptian princess? Or so she thought. Solomon lets the Shulamite know that she is the only one for him. He adds in verse 10, Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with chains of gold. And then the daughters chime in, We will make your ornaments of gold with studs of silver. In other words, her jewelry is on order. She too will soon enjoy the advantages of palace life. You know, her ornaments are are coming. You know, it's interesting, our King Jesus also clothes us with spiritual gifts. You know, you see yourself as, as you used to be, but he sees you clothed with his righteousness, blessed with his gifts. He sees you as adorned and decked out in the grace that he's lavished upon you. God's grace not only chooses us and saves us, but it blesses us and adorns us. Now, verse 12 through chapter 2, verse 7, the Shulamite recounts a night of intimacy that she had with the king early in their marriage. And this is the first of several romantic and erotic sections in the book. This evening began at a state dinner, but it ended with a sexual feast. That evening, the Shulamite, she wore a new perfume. Could have been Hallel number 5. I'm not sure. But, but in the midst of the meal, The aroma of this new perfume, it sort of wafted across the room. And it caught the king's attention. 
And she's, she says in verse 12, while the king is at his table, my spikenard sends forth its fragrance. She, he catches a, a, the smell of the perfume and they, they look at each other and they exchange these knowing glances and just the look in each other's eyes arouse passion. Notice here, it's sometimes the little gestures, the caring glances that lead to a night of passion in a marriage. Shlomo and Shula, they begin their foreplay long before they enter the bedroom. I got a, had a book I saw published several years ago. It's entitled, Sex Begins in the Kitchen. I never read the book, but I never forgot the title. The implication is that little acts of kindness and thoughtfulness and tenderness by a husband throughout the day do more to arouse his wife sexually than does a sudden embrace at the end of the day. Guys need to understand this. You know, men need to understand the difference in the sexual impulses of men and women. Sometimes we forget. You see, men are turned on by sight. I mean, just show a husband a little leg and the guy goes nuts. But women, they're aroused slowly, more gradually. A stimulating night in bed begins with a kind word at breakfast and a phone call to your sweetheart at noon and help with the dishes after dinner and putting the kids to bed. I mean, guys, women respond more to forethought than to simply foreplay. You know, in terms of sexual desire, men are like dry leaves. We're just dry, we're a pile of dry leaves, man. We are easily combustible. It doesn't take much for us to ignite, but once we do, we burn out rather quickly. Whereas women are like charcoal, man. Women are like charcoal. It takes longer, and it takes more to ignite them. Lighting charcoal can be a delicate job. I mean, you got to protect it from the wind and you, and you got to prime it with a little lighter fluid and, and you got to be patient and, and it may take several matches, you know, to, to catch it on fire, to get a flame going. But I'm telling you, once it begins to burn, it lasts a lot longer than a pile of leaves, I can tell you that. Men, your wife has a deeper threshold for sexual enjoyment than you do. But in order for her to reach it, she has to be gently primed and protected and shown patience. Song of Solomon teaches married couples that there is a big difference between having sex and making love. Solomon and the Shulamites' night of lovemaking, it begins with the smell of perfume at dinner. But soon they retire to their bridal chambers. She says in verse 13, A bundle of myrrh is my beloved to me that lies all night between my breasts. Oriental women, they often slept with a bag of perfume around their neck so that the next day they carried it around with them a pleasant odor. This was her way of saying that her husband brings out the best in her. She says, my beloved is to me a cluster of henna blooms in the vineyards of Engedi. Verse 15, Solomon speaks. Behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. You have dove's eyes. A dove was a bird associated with purity and innocence. The Shulamite speaks next. Behold, you are handsome, my beloved. Yes, pleasant. Notice both lovers are complimenting each other's appearance. Then in verse 17 she mentions, Also our bed is green. The beams of our houses are cedar, and our rafters are of fir. Notice now she's looking at the rafters, which means she's on her back. She's lying on her back now. She's inviting her husband to bed. Chapter 2. I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. Now, Now some Bible teachers ascribe these words to Solomon and then by inference to Jesus. And there are actually some old hymns that refer to Jesus as the rose of Sharon and as the lily of the valley. But this doesn't speak of Solomon. This speaks of the Shulamite. She's the one uttering these words. Again, here's what's happening. She's struggling with her insecurities. They're in bed together. They're intimate with one another. But but she's feeling that she's not enough, that she's not sufficient. Her insecurities are haunting her. 
You see, in ancient Israel, roses and lilies, they were common, man. They were everywhere. Rather than go for $100 a dozen, you could go out and pick them anywhere. Roses, lilies, they were just common things. And what's happening here is that the Shulamite is bringing her insecurities to bed. She's saying, oh, I'm just a lily. I'm just a rose of Sharon. I'm just a lily in the valley. And her self-doubts are about to spoil the evening if it were not for Solomon's sensitivity. Remember, guys, you got to be sensitive to your wife's insecurities. I love how he answers her in verse 2. He says, oh, like a lily among thorns, so is my love among the daughters. What a fantastic line. I I know you, you feel like a lily, sweetheart, but in my book, you're a lily among thorns. Solomon was sensitive to his wife's insecurities and reservations, and he was quick to lay them to rest. It saved the evening. The Shulamite speaks of Solomon in verse 3. Like an apple tree among the trees of the woods, so is my beloved among the sons. I sat down in his shade with great delight, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. Now the phrase, I sat down in his shade, his fruit was sweet to the taste. These are sexual metaphors. Apparently, she's under his limbs. She's tasting his fruit. Use your imagination here. And notice verse 4. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Notice her enjoyment of sex, ladies. She is so satisfied with her husband's love that she calls their bedroom the banqueting house. Guys, when, when uh, your wife says, hey, sweetheart, let's, let's have a banquet. Let's go back to the old banquet hall. <laughs> hey, that's something to get excited about. Shulamite says in verse 5, Sustain me with cakes of raisins. Refresh me with apples, for I am lovesick. Literally, the word lovesick means exhausted from making love. She's exhausted, but, but she's encouraging him on. Verse 6. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. Solomon is acting unselfishly. He's satisfying his wife. I mean, the pile of leaves burned out a long time ago, but the charcoal is still glowing. And and I hope you realize that these are not just Washington apples here she's talking about. These are Solomon's apples. I'll bet you didn't know that was in the Bible, but it is. As I said earlier, just remember, God isn't blushing. Now let me make two points here. First, why all this symbolism? Why all this talk of apples and raisin cakes and under his shade and on and on? Well, understand this. When God speaks of sexual expression, he doesn't use slang terms. That'd be crass and crude. Nor does he use medical terms. That would be unromantic and mechanical. No, God describes sexual activity with poetic symbolism. I sat down in his shade. His fruit was sweet to my taste. Use a little imagination. And and these phrases become quite the turn on. I mean, ladies, think about it for a minute. What's more appealing? Hey, get over here. Let me inspect the merchandise. Or let me visit your garden and enjoy its fruit. I mean, what would you rather hear? Let me make a suggestion, if you're married. Why not you and your spouse try to use some poetic language in your lovemaking? It will engage your mind and activate your imagination. And understand, the most vital sexual organ for husbands and wives is your brain. If your sex life has become bland, why not spice it up with some verbal stimulation? Don't talk dirty. Talk descriptive. Develop some clean yet poetic language, some suggestive language that will help you convey your desires. I dare you. (laughs) Well, here's the second point. Notice throughout these verses here, the Shulamite is complimenting her husband's lovemaking skills. And ladies, this is smart. If you want your man to act manly, then you need to treat him as a man. And nothing 
reinforces a man's masculinity more than knowing he satisfies his wife sexually. So tell him. Encourage him. It'll help him be the man that you want him to be. Now, after this romantic encounter with with her husband, the Shulamite warns her single friends in verse 7. She says, I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the does of the field, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. She's saying, wait until marriage to stir up these sexual passions. Now, here's what the Shulamite would say if she were here tonight. She would say, sex is hot and it's holy. It's sizzling and it's spiritual. It's giddy and it's godly. But sex comes with a warning label. Sex is good, but it becomes harmful when it's engaged in outside of a lifelong marital commitment. Everything we're reading here works in the context of marriage. It becomes destructive outside of that context. In fact, three times in the song, chapter 2, verse 7, chapter 3, verse 5, chapter 8, verse 4, the Shulamite tells her unmarried maidens not to incite sexual passion until after marriage. You see, sex is like a nuclear explosion. Once you've lost control... It's awfully hard to stop the reaction. Beware of the power of sex. God didn't design our bodies to reach peak sexual arousal and then suddenly slam on the brakes. And this is why heavy petting and sexual contact before marriage is harmful. You thought it was bad because it could lead to intercourse. And that is an immediate danger. But the real damage it does is it teaches a person how not to have intercourse. How to get to the brink and then not drink. God didn't design it that way. It's like learning to drive with your foot on the brake. It's going to create some dysfunctions in how you drive. And it's going to create some dysfunctions in your sex life after you get married. Your body wasn't designed to rev up the hormones, to rev up things and then suddenly kill the engine. And when that's done over and over, it teaches the body unnatural responses, dysfunctions that do interfere with intimacy after you're married. When God says no to premarital sexual intimacy, he isn't being a killjoy. In fact, just the opposite. He's trying to preserve for your marriage the highest and the holiest joys. Well, here in verse 8, the Shulamite, she flashes back to their courtship. And to the day that Solomon proposed, she says, The voice of my beloved, behold, he comes leaping upon the mountains, skipping upon the hills. She she admired the way he walked. She said, man, he's got good legs. Look at his calves. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, he stands behind our wall. He is looking through the windows, gazing through the lattice. He surprised her with a visit, and he called to her through her lattice window. She remembers that. My beloved spoke, and he said to me, Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. They were dating. He's been courting her. He's been trying to woo her love. The Shulamite is reliving the initial love they shared with each other. You know, in Revelation chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, Jesus warns the church at Ephesus, I have this against you, that you have left Your first love. And this is also a danger for believers. In our spiritual life, we can lose that initial passion, that that initial love that we had for our Lord. The intensity of our love for Jesus can fade unless we continually cultivate it, unless we go back and do those first works, Revelation tells us. The Shulamite didn't want this to happen in her marriage, and we need to guard against it in our Christian life. We shouldn't leave our first love. Well, the Shulamite says in verse 11, For lo, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone, the flowers appear on the earth, the time of singing has come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree puts forth her green figs, and the vines with the tender grapes give a good smell. Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. See, during the winter, travel had been restricted. And Solomon had been unable to visit. 
But with the spring thaw, she now expects her sweetheart's arrival. Verse 14. Oh, my dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the secret places of the cliff, let me see your face. Let me hear your voice. For your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. During those long winter absences, the Shulamite had longed to see Solomon. She knew he'd come. And you know, I suppose today is our winter. At least physically, we're separated today from our King Jesus. We too long for the day when he'll return. Let's be as confident and as eager to see Jesus as the Shulamite was to see Solomon. He's coming for us one day. It won't be long. And then in verse 15, we have a special guest. The Shulamite's brothers chime in with a warning. They say, catch us the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vines, for our vines have tender grapes. Now, since the Shulamite's family owned a vineyard, these brothers knew a little bit about foxes. These little guys would slip through the cracks in the wall, or or they'd get through the holes in the fence, and they would eat the grapes. Be warned, little foxes can devastate large vineyards. And this is also true in marriage. It's often the little things that rob us of joy and cause problems in our marriage. It's the little stuff. It's the sarcasm and the slights and the rudeness and the misunderstandings and the insensitivities that pile up and that eat away at our marriage. Minor issues add up. Major damage gets done. Couples need to watch out for the little foxes that can spoil the vine. And then in verse 16, the Shulamite responds, My beloved is mine. And I am his. She loves Solomon and he loves her. She wanted to marry him. He feeds his flock among the lilies until the day breaks and the shadows flee away. Turn, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag upon the mountains of Bethir. Apparently Solomon had proposed and had desired to return to Jerusalem with an answer. But before she accepts, she wants to sleep on her decision. She says, until the day breaks. And yet it didn't take that long. For she says in chapter 3, By night on my bed I sought the one I love. I sought him, but I did not find him. I will rise now, I said, and go about the city, in the streets and in the squares. I will seek the one I love. I sought him, but I did not find him. The watchman who go about the city found me. I said, have you seen the one I love? I mean, rather than wait for daybreak, she strikes out in the night to find Solomon, to accept his proposal. Scarcely had I passed by them when I found the one I love. I held him and would not let him go until I had brought him to the house of my mother and into the chamber of her who conceived me. And here's a beautiful picture of the commitment that's involved in marriage. She says, I held him. And would not let him go. True love never lets go. And this also depicts the Christian's devotion to Christ. I hope that when you embrace Jesus, you did so with the intention of never letting go. That's the kind of love we need to have for our Lord. As well as for our spouse. And then verse 5. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the does of the field, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. Now, in ancient Israel, when a groom paid the bridal price, he would toast his bride, and then he would leave to go and prepare a place for him and his bride to live. You remember, this is what Jesus did. At the Last Supper, what did he do? He toasted his church. He told his disciples, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And then what did Jesus do? He returned to heaven where today he is preparing a place for us. And according to John 14, when it's ready, he is going to return and he's going to take us home to be with him. This is exactly what Solomon did. He proposed to the Shulamite. She accepted He toasted her. They had an official ceremony. But then he left and he went back to Jerusalem to prepare the palace, to prepare a place there for her. He wants to prepare for the new queen. But now he's going to come back to Lebanon to retrieve his bride 
and consummate the marriage. And in verse 6, the Shulamite, she recalls her wedding night. In fact, she still sees her bridegroom coming down the country road for her in his oriental limo. Here she says, Who is this coming out of the wilderness like pillars of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the merchant's fragrant powders? Behold, it is Solomon's couch with 60 valiant men around it of the valiant of Israel. They all hold swords, being expert in war. Every man has his sword on his thigh because of fear in the night. You see, until now, she has only known Solomon as the shepherd, but now he comes for her as the king. He's surrounded by all these armed guards. He has this royal posse, and he's riding in this, in this royal couch. This is going to be our reaction when we see Jesus, when he returns. Our Lord appeared the first time as the good shepherd, but when he comes again, we'll see him as king of kings and as lord of lords. Now, verse 9, he, she describes this, this honeymoon limo that he arrives in that's going to actually transport them back to Jerusalem. She says, Of the wood of Lebanon, Solomon the king made himself a palanquin. He made its pillars of silver, its support of gold, its seat of purple, its interior paved with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. Solomon's couch, or what's called here the palanquin. It was a covered bed carried on poles. It was sort of a a mobile bedroom is what it was. I guess you could call it an oriental version of a customized van. You remember those? You know, with the stereo, the 8-track in the back, you know, and the the opaque windows and the, the, you know, rug and shag carpet all in the back and, and all there. This is the vehicle that you would never, ever allow your unmarried daughter to step foot in. But this is what Solomon shows up in. He's in this this couch, this this coach. And the court ladies from Jerusalem, oh my, they've prepared this thing. They have lined it with flower petals and with fragrant powders and scents and perfumes you see, the Orientals believed that the art of lovemaking should include the stimulation of all five senses. That environment mattered. Solomon made sure that the honeymoon environment was as exciting and as stimulating and as soothing as possible. Check this out. His couch showed that he cared. Husbands. You need to realize that when it comes to your wife's sexual arousal, the environment matters. You see, when men are aroused, all that exists in the whole world are two sheets and my wife. That's it. I mean, the house can be burning down. Dinner can be burning. The house can be burning. Kids can be screaming. It doesn't matter. Two sheets, my wife, I'm focused. For the guy, sex is a time to block out. But for the wife, sex is a time to take in. Thus, she becomes acutely aware of her surroundings. Are the clothes picked up? What do the clothes have to do with it? Can the kids hear what we're doing? Are the lights just right? Are the dishes done? I could care less whether the dishes are done. You worried about the dishes, honey? I'll go down. I'll take the dishes. I'll throw the dishes out in the backyard. I'll buy you all new dishes. I don't care about the dishes. Oh, no. Wait, 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 wait. I need to go shut the the closet door. You got to shut the closet door? You think the boogeyman's in there? What do you think? What's going on? You see, for men, I mean, the environment, we're unaware of our environment, but for women, man, they're acutely aware of what's going on around them. This is why a smart lover selects the right time and eliminates those distractions and prepares a romantic environment. He doesn't fight with his wife on these issues. Oh, no. He plays by her rules. 
And he makes the environment just as enticing as possible. You see, this was the environment that Solomon created. Basically, it was sensory overload. Listen to this description of what you might have found had you stepped into this honeymoon limo. One author writes this. The wall would have been lined with beautiful linen and satin curtains, which were coated with scented powders to make the room smell erotic. The bed sheets were dusted with scented powders, as was the clothing. Their bodies were anointed with scented lotions. To top it all off, they probably burned incense, and thus the whole room was full, filled with smoke. In fact, we probably would have choked. Now, husbands, you can start with a little scaled-down version. Draw a warm bubble bath for your wife. Just let her soak while you do the dishes. And you put the kids to bed, and you do the homework. And then prep the bedroom with some soft lights and some romantic music and a scented candle. And then you give your girl a massage with a soothing lotion. You try this once a week for three months, and you let me know if you like the results. You see, Solomon created just the right atmosphere for him and his bride. Atmosphere matters to women. Chapter 3 closes. Go forth, O daughters of Zion, and see King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, the day of the gladness of his heart. Now Solomon's palanquin departs for Jerusalem. It leaves Lebanon, departs for Jerusalem. The strong men are around them protecting them while the honeymooners head to bed. And we get to eavesdrop in on their conversation beginning in chapter 4. But you'll have to come back next week.